0: Okay. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope everybody had a great productive weekend. Boy, I had a great productive weekend. It was crazy, and I got a lot done. I'll tell you. Anyway, we're here for Sunday Reading Day, California House Radio. And let me make an adjustment here. There we go. Sunday Reading Day, and this is the day that I read from a paranormal-themed book. And the book we've been reading from is about Lizzie Borden. I'll give everybody a few minutes to get in and get ready and get seated and grab their popcorn and whatever it is they do, eat dinner while I read my book. But uh, it's been interesting. When we last saw Lizzie, she was at her house with her sister and her uncle, and they were mourning the loss of the parents, of course. Lizzie hiding what what she had done, allegedly done. Because we don't know if you not convicted yet, right? Hiding what she allegedly had done. And. Uh, it's weird because I get you know back in the 1800s it was nothing to keep the keep bodies at the at your let me move, at your house right so the bodies were like down in the basement of the house and they were and they were upstairs having breakfast on the table where the, where the bodies were on top seat and all this going on and you know but there were some different things that I guess Lucy had done and her uncle had let me move this over a little bit and her uncle had done. That kind of raises suspicion of of the police. And, uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to hear, you know, what the results of that were and how the police handled that. But uh, little by little, the police are starting to look at Lizzie as as a possible suspect in all this. And uh, it's getting interesting because Lizzie's getting nervous. You know, it, it seems like every time she's talked to them, she's given them a different answer to their questions. And so she's starting to trip her. Kind of trip herself up which is what which is what police do they'll question you multiple times to see if you trip up you know excuse me to see if your stories add up you know if your versions of what of what happened added up add up so this is what happened to lizzie is that she's starting to realize that she might have tripped up here and there i hate things that hang down anyway if she's starting to realize that she might have tripped up here and there on her statements to the police, and of course the police are noticing this too. So that is why they're now looking at her more and more as a um, suspect to the uh, crime. So uh, I did some mowing in the backyard this weekend. I did, did some yard cleaning. I, I I did a couple of today was a pretty bu- was a pretty pretty busy day. My friend and I, and. Uh, I've been getting up, my hours have changed, so I've been getting up at like seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, and it's kind of crazy because I'm a night owl, and so I'm used to working at night, and it's, it's it's hard. Because after I get done here, I'll usually have a dinner. I'll usually work for another hour after the show and then have a dinner break and then come back in and work for two or three hours on, on show stuff. So it's kind of messing me up because by the time I, after I have dinner, I'm sleepy, right? And I, like everybody else, and I want to go to sleep, and i, I still got stuff to do. So um, I'm trying to get used to this new, this new old schedule, you know, because like I was like everybody else for years, I, I got up in the morning, went to work did all that, you know, did all that. But then as I started doing the show the last couple of years, I got in this habit where I'm up all night after doing the show. So I'm trying to get into the habit where I can actually go to work, you know, after I have dinner and after being up early. So uh, I'm sure I'll get there. My body needs to get on a schedule or something. But anyway, um, I want to welcome everybody. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And I'm going to be reading about Lizzie Borden. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find this at CaliforniaHaunts.org or the radio station, the radio show itself is at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or our YouTube page, which is just California Haunts. It's not California Haunts Radio, it's California Haunts. That's how you can find us on the YouTube page. If you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear tonight, please, uh, please follow. All right, if you're watching from Twitch, you like what you hear tonight, please follow. And of course, if you're watching from YouTube, there's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. Click on that, and that'll that'll make you a subscriber to our YouTube channel. And if you look on that YouTube channel, there's more than 270 videos over there, different topics. I don't always do paranormal topics. I'm a journal. I'm I'm a journalist, photojournalist by trade, and I like to, I like to mix it up a little bit. You know, we might do paranormal one night, we might do something about people that eat bugs the next night. You know, it's just it's just what we do. So you got to check us out because I think there's something a little bit of something for everybody who goes all over to our YouTube page to check out the archives. Also, you can find us at Blog Talk Radio by typing in California Haunts Radio. We were on Blog Talk Radio for more than 10 years. So we have a bunch of shows over there as well and if you go on apple to find us for apple podcasts you'll see that there are two versions of the california haunts radio show one is from when we were on blog talk and one is this show right here that we do over facebook live and all the all these other places so uh it's kind of kind of confusing as as to what those are but that's what that is there's two different versions two different types of show one was a straight podcast And then there's this one that's video and podcast. So it's kind of cool. Summer's going fast, isn't it? We're coming into August already. That was fast. Last year it seemed like it dragged on for some reason. I don't know why, but this year summer is just whipping by. I mean, whipping. Whipping. Anyway, I want to welcome you all. This is our Sunday night where we read, I I read from a paranormal-themed book. And, uh, Rebecca Pittman, uh, author Rebecca Pittman, has nicely allowed me to use her book. She self publishes, and uh, I called her up and said, and that, You know, she's been a guest a couple times here on the show. And I called her up to see if we could uh, use the Lizzie Borton book, and she agreed. And so I'm really happy. You know, we're doing our 11th day of of, of reading, our 11th Sunday of reading Lizzie Borton. You know, and it's, it's really an, a really good book. All right, let me turn this bad boy on and then we'll get going here. I need a quick little pick me up before the show, you know, so I turned around and got some strawberry jelly and (laughs) grabbed a hamburger bun and made myself a strawberry jelly burger (laughs) before the show started. I have a very old tablet old like me so give it a couple, give it a few minutes to power up here some of you who heard the show on was it wednesday night i think wednesday night may have heard part of what i'm reading tonight because um our guest was late coming on so i decided to read i didn't know if the guest was going to be on for sure so i went ahead and read some of what i was supposed to read today to everybody so i went ahead and just decided to go back because what I read was pretty cool, so I decided to reread it. So, you, you may hear some of that. Kindle, dun, 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 dun. I love the Kindle logo too with the, the kid under the tree reading. Okay, so here we go. Let's see. Let me get this going again. This thing. Okay, That's why I hate chords. John Morris is throws. Uh, John Morris is. Th- John Morris's stroll through town. See if we finally got it. Sometime Saturday, two acquaintances of John Morris' from South Dartmouth came to visit him at the house. South Dartmouth is home to William A. Davis, the butcher, with whom John resides, and with whom a major horse trading and cattle deal was in the works. We do not know what transpired during their conversation. The New York Herald ran the following snippet Saturday, August 6, 1892. Late tonight... John B. Morse left the Borden house and walked rapidly down 2nd Street toward the business portion of the town. There was an officer at his heels. He wandered around for nearly an hour and then returned to the house, the detective never leaving him for an instant. Whether he visited to get the air or merely to test the closeness of the espionage to which he is subject is not certain. Sometime that eventful Saturday, Bridget, packed the last of her things and left the Borden's attic room for good. A cousin, Patrick Harrington, had offered a room in 95 Division Street in Fall River, walking distance to the police station, although still a fair stretch. She was summoned to the house on Monday, but she would no longer call 92 Second Street home. Also that day, Marshall Hilliard and Dr. Dolan visited the receiving vault at Oak Grove Cemetery. Nothing was done at that time other than to look at the bodies in general? Were they taking another look at the wounds, or was the visit for more nefarious motives? Were the two men interested in seeing if a small gold ring still circled Andy Borden's little finger? Or did they check to see if a murder weapon or blood-stained dress had been secreted inside the coffin Saturday morning as Lizzie wept and bent over her father's casket to kiss him? What more clever way to dispose of evidence than to bury it along with the murder victim six feet beneath the ground? The two men walked through the cemetery toward their carriage and discussed the case. Inside the cool cavern of the vault, Andrew and Abby Borden lay in their caskets, not yet at peace. Their final divigation was yet to come. Chapter 25 Saturday, August 7, 1892 The Fall River Herald, August 7, 1892 Sunday was a quiet day around the house. Emma Borden appeared at the door at eight o'clock to take in the milk. The servant girl, Bridget Sullivan, could, sta- could stand the strain no longer and left the house Saturday night to join her friends. None of the family ventured out the church, and there was nobody visible at the windows. The event of the day was the arrival of the ha- of the, at the house of Detective Hanscom of the Boston Peekerton Agency, who entered with lawyer Jennings during the, during the forenoon. He had been hired by the Bordens to look after their interests. He had questioned Lizzie, but found her too exhausted physically for a searching examination. If the Fall River Herald thought the event of the day was the arrival of Detective Hanscom at 92 Second Street, they were not privy to Lizzie Borden's movements that that Sunday morning. Hanscom's appearance would have paled in comparison to the events about to take place within the Borden's kitchen. Alice Russell was questioned during the Superior Court trial as to what occurred on Sunday, August 7th. Mr. Moody, parentheses for the defense. Who got the breakfast Sunday morning? Alice, I got the breakfast. Moody, after the breakfast had been got and the dishes had been cleared away, did you leave the lower part of the house at all? Alice, yes, sir. Moody, afterward, did you return? Alice, yes, sir. Moody, about what time in the morning was it when you returned? Miss Russell, Alice, I don't know. Moody, was it before noon? Alice, yes, sir. Moody, will you state what you saw after you returned? Alice, I went into the kitchen and I saw Miss Lizzie at the other end of the stove. I saw Miss Emmett at the sink. Miss Lizzie was at the stove and she had a skirt in her hand. And her sister turned and said, What are you going to do? And Lizzie said, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It is covered with paint. Moody, covered in paint. Is that the expression? Alice, I don't know whether she said covered in paint or covered with paint. Moody, do you recall anything else said then? Alice, no, sir. Moody, what did you do then? Alice, I'm quite sure I left the room. Moody, did you speak to either of them at the time? Alice, no, sir. I don't remember that. I did. Moody, did you come in the room again? Alice, yes, sir. Moody, what did you see then? Alice, Miss Lizzie stood up towards the covered door. The cupboard door was open, and she appeared to be either ripping something down or tearing part of a garment. Moody, what part? Alice, I don't know for sure. It was a small part. Moody, a smaller part? Go on and state. Alice, I said to her, I wouldn't let anybody see me do that, Lizzie. She didn't make any answer. I left the room. Moody, did she do anything when you said that? Alice, she stepped just one step farther back up towards the cupboard door. Moody, did you notice... Oh, sorry. Where the waist of the dress was when she held the skirt in her hands as you first came in? Alice. I didn't know that it was the waist, but I saw a portion of, of this dress up on the covered shelf. Moody. Inside the cupboard? Alice. Yes, the door was wide open. Moody. When you came back the second time, and she was tearing the smaller part, did you see the skirt? Alice. Well, I'm not positive. I think I did. Moody. Did you have any more talk with her that day, or did she say anything to you about it? Alice, no, sir. Moody, at that time, were there any police officers in the house? Alice, no, sir. Moody, were there any police officers about the premises? Alice, yes, sir. Moody, do you know whether there was anyone else in the house except yourself and Miss Emma and Miss Lizzie Borden? Alice, I don't think there was. Moody, Miss Russell, will you tell us what kind of dress? Give us a description of the dress that she burned that you have testified about on Sunday morning. Alice, it was a cheap cotton bed for cord. Moody, what was its color? Alice, light blue, ground with a dark figure, small figure. Moody, do you know when she got it? Alice, in the early spring of that same year. Cross-examination by Governor Robinson for the defense. Robinson, you called it a Bedford cord, is that right? Alice, yes, sir. Robinson. Is that what we call a calico? Alice. No, sir. Robinson. Quite different from a calico? Alice. Yes, sir. Robinson. And is it a cambric? Alice. No, sir. Robinson. The dress you saw Sunday morning was not a calico, was it? Alice. I judge not. I suppose it was the same dress that I, re- that I have reference to her having made in the spring. That was the bed for cord. Robinson. Were you... Sp- Were you three the only persons in there at breakfast? Alice. No, sir. Robinson. Was Mr. Morse? Alice. Yes, sir. Robinson. And did I understand you to say that you went out? Did you go out of the house after breakfast? Alice. I didn't go out of the house. I think I went to my room, or the room I occupied the night before, and put it in order. Robinson. Did you help in washing the dishes? Alice. No, sir. Not that morning. Robinson. You left that to Miss Lizzie and Miss Emma to do? Alice. Miss Emma. I can't say for sure about Lizzie. Robinson. When you came back from your chamber, you came into the kitchen and saw Miss Lizzie with the Bedford Core dress, and some other part of the dress was over on the mantel or a chair, was it? Alice. It was on the cupboard shelf. Robinson. Did you see blood on that dress? Alice. No, sir. Robinson. Did you see any blood on the remaining part of it? Alice. No, sir. Did you see that it was a soiled dress? Alice. The edge of it was soiled as she held it up. The edge she held towards me like this, illustrating, and this edge was soiled. Governor Robinson's clever location of the dress did not work. He he says, part of the dress was over on the mantel or a chair, was it? He is trying to get Alice to say the dress was out in the open, not suspiciously hidden away in a closet, used for storing cleaning supplies and fuel for the stove. But Alice doesn't take the bait. She restates it was on the cupboard shelf. Okay. Emma's question to Lizzie as she sees her standing at the stove with a skirt. What are you going to do? Takes on a different slant when Emma testifies during the superior court trial. Alice states she heard Emma say nothing after Lizzie tells her sister she is going to burn this old thing up. Emma, under oath, testifies a year later at the trial and she responded to Lizzie's statement by saying, "Why don't you, or you better, or I would if I were you, or something like that." Emma steps way over the ethical and legal line during the same testimony to the state. She saw, just oh, during the same testimony to state, she saw the stained Bedford Court dress hanging in the clothes press, which is a closet. Saturday night, after the funeral, she states she went into the closet looking for a peg to hang her dress on that she had worn that day and noticed the Bedford cord hanging there. This is after the police did an intensive search of that closet earlier that day and did not see the dress. She goes on to say it was her idea that Lizzie burns it, as it was not good for anything as it was so badly faded and soiled. Attorney Knowlton must have felt physically sick at this blatant lie. The burning of the dress gives us a few interesting insights. Lizzie's faith in her sister's complicity is absolute. She knows Emma will see her burning the dress. She is right there at the sink. Emma is probably still off balance from Lizzie's outburst the night before. Screaming of betrayal. Yet, Lizzie has not one doubt her older sister will stand by her. Another thing worth noticing is that the dress was never carried away to be disposed of. Many Lizzie fans have postulated that Bridget, or Mrs. Holmes, or even Alice covered for Lizzie, and secreted the dress away. It is still here and she must burn it to destroy the evidence. What we don't know, and may never know, is what became of the calico she wore over the Bedford cord when she was arrested and taken away. Did she find a way to remove the bloodstains from inside the lining? Did she continue to wear it, or did she find a way to destroy it as well? Alice Russell has seen much since the time Bridget Sullivan breathlessly knocked on her small cottage door the morning of Thursday, August 4th. Seeing the burning of the dress after witnessing Lizzie's changing stories to officers and friends, along with the frightening scene the night before, one that required Dr. Bowen to come running twice with a strong sedative, is all running through her mind. She will wrestle with it until the next day. During the time the Pinkerton detective was in the sister's employ, a disconcerting newspaper report came out of Hastings, Iowa, John Morris' home for 25 years before moving back to Massachusetts. The Hastings Dispatch stated Miss Lizzie Borden has sent detective Hanscom out here to investigate relative to John Morris's past life. The people of Hastings, and particularly John Davison, Morris's brother, Morris's brother in law, are awaiting the arrival of the Pinkerton expert with much interest. Lizzie has gone after John. A trip to the receiving vault, the Fall River Herald. Sunday, august seventh, eighteen ninety two. Assistant Marshal Fleet, Doctors Dolan and Leary, visited the receiving vault Sunday and made a further examination of the bodies, taking measurements of the wounds and notes of other matters which will be of use when testimony is needed in the trial. The visit to the cemetery was an important one. The axe was taken along with Dr. Dolan and Assistant Marshal Fleet and was fitted into the wounds with what conclusions cannot be stated, stated at once. The blow which was delivered over the temple of both victims was with a dull edge, and it was impossible to tell whether the axe would fit the wound or not. So shattered was the bone. The cut which extended down the front of Mr. Borden's nose was in the soft part of the face, so that the entire edge of the weapon cut into the flesh. It was an easy matter to measure that, and it was found that while the exact length of the gash did not correspond with the width of the axe blade, yet it could readily have been made by such a weapon. None of the cuts on Mrs. Borden was so, was so clean as that on the face of her husband. In every instance, the axe had brought up against the skull, and it was not embedded in the, enti- embedded the entire width. Was in parentheses. The axe taken to compare to the Borden's wounds was likely the long-handled axe that Mary Coughlin studied under a microscope. He found three suspicious stains that may be blood upon the handle. It was later ruled out as the murder weapon. If the article is referring to the clawhead hatchet that did have a long 17-inch handle, its blade too was later found to be too wide to fit the incisions. (In parentheses, Dr. Dolan's findings on Abby's death.) The Fall River Herald stated that medical examiner Dr. Dolan said the only discovery of importance made during the thorough investigation Saturday afternoon was in the spare room where Mrs. Borden's body was found. Out near the window, drops of blood were found, which indicated that the murdered woman had moved after the first blow was delivered. It is thought that the blow was the glancing one which, was, which has been described. The supposition is that the axe fell on the right side of the head, taking off the flesh and hair, and that the woman turned and reeled to the space between the dressing case and the bureau where the mortal wound was delivered. After that, the blows fell thick and fast. It is believed that when she was approached, Mrs. Borden stood looking out of the window in this room, when her blood, which stained it at this point, bears out that view. Dr. Dolan says that the more he reflects on the small quantity of blood that was spilled, the more at a loss he is to account for it. The same condition prevails in the sitting room below where Mr. Borden was butchered, and, and there was nothing to raise the suspicion that the murderer had cleaned anything except the dripping axe. Actually, the first blow fell on the left of Abby's face near her ear, not the right. In Officer Medley returns to Westport, Massachusetts. Officer Medley went to Westport on Sunday, August 7th, and spoke to Mrs. Cyrus. Parentheses, Augusta W. Tripp, at her home there. She was the old school friend Lizzie had visited with Poole with the pools during her trip to New Bedford nine days before the murders. Officer Medley asked Augustus some questions, to which she answered, Lizzie told me she thought her stepmother was deceitful, being one thing to her face and another to her back. Lizzie told me her stepmother claimed not to have any influence with her father. But she must have influence with my father, or he never would have given my stepmother's half-sister such a very large sum of money, she said. She said, I do not know that my sister and I would get anything in the event of my father's death. This conversation took place at different times during former visits, nothing being said during her visit July 26th. While Officer Medley was in Westport, he stopped to talk to the horse traders that were rumored to be in business with John Morse. They denied any knowledge of such a claim, as the horses had been surreptitiously moved to Fairhagen without the officer's knowledge, Medley can find nothing suspicious. Lizzie and Emma received calls from a few friends throughout the day. Meanwhile, the police scurried about town holding meetings and going over evidence. They hoped to convince Judge Blaisdell that there was sufficient cause to arrest Lizzie Borden and hold her over for a preliminary hearing. Marshal Hilliard ordered a man named William Niles to be at the Bordens at 2.30 to dig up the clothes that had been buried behind the barn. What happened to them at that time is unknown. They were buried again several minutes later. Sunday, Admonitions from the Pulpit Rev. W. Walker Jubb of the Central Congregational Church gave a heartfelt plea to his parishioners that Sunday morning. The First Congregational Church was also in attendance within the stone building on Main Street. Lizzie's pew was obviously vacant, and rumors had been swirling amongst the public both outside and inside the church. Let us ourselves curb our tongues and preserve a blameless life from undeserved suspicions, he, he intoned. And while we hope, he continued, for the triumph of justice, let our acts be tempered with mercy. Help us to refrain from giving voice to those intuitions and windows which we have no right to utter. Keep us from keeping the sweetness of a future by our ill advised words, and let us be charitable as we remember the poor grief-stricken family and minister unto them. Reverend Buck stepped to the side of the pulpit and, leaving the Bible behind, addressed the congregation with the words they had been waiting to hear. I cannot close my sermon this morning without speaking of this horrible crime that has startled our beloved city this week, ruthlessly taking from our church household two respected and esteemed members. I cannot close without referring to my pain and surprise at the atrocity of the outrage, a more brutal, cunning, daring, and fiendish murder I never heard of it all in my life. What must have been the per- what must have been the person who could have been guilty of such a revolting crime? One to commit such a murder must have been without heart, without soul, a fiend incarnate, the very vilest of degraded and depraved humanity, or he must have been a maniac. The circumstances, execution, and all the surroundings cover it with, mis- cover it with mystery profound. Explanations and evidence as to both perpetrator and motive are shrouded in a mystery that is almost inexplicable. That such a crime could have been committed during the busy hours of the day, right in the heart of a populous city, is passing comprehension. What was the motive? Gain? Enmity? Sudden anger or revenge? Strangely, nothing of this nature enters into this case. I hope the criminal will be speedily brought to justice. This city cannot afford to have in its midst such an inhuman brute as the murder of Andrew J. Borden and his wife. Why? A man who could conceive why, a man who could conceive and execute such a murder as that would not hesitate to burn the city? Did some of the churchgoers that day wonder if perhaps the good Reverend might be referencing the same person in both summations? Could the blameless life also be capable of wielding a hatchet and leaving behind a mystery that is almost inexplicable. Reverend Jubb's final words that the murderer would not hesitate to burn the city was prophetic, its meaning manifesting later during Lizzie's residence on the hill. Chapter 26 Monday, August 8, 1892 Monday found the household at 92 Second Street on Edge. Another search was to be done, one that would actually dismantle part of the cellar. At ten that morning, officers F. L. Edson, Desmond, Medley, Connors, and Quigley arrived at the Borden House. With them was Charles H. Brighton, a Mason. Charles H. Bryant, a Mason. Their mission in the cellar that day, excuse me, was to look for any weapon, clothing, or anything else that related to the murder within the chimney cavity. To do that, it was necessary to remove some of the masonry. Upon their arrival, Officer Mason asked Lizzie for her consent to search the premises. This is Officer Desmond's report. I told her, parentheses Lizzie, that we had been sent by Marshal Hilliard to make some further search of the premises. Lizzie said, If there is going to be anything done or anything said, Mr. Jennings must be here. This took place in the sitting room. Hanscom, from the Pinkerton Agency, was sitting in the room at the time. While waiting for Mr. Jennings, Emma came into the sitting room from the front hallway and said, if you only want to do some searching, you can go right ahead and search any place you wish. But if there is any conversation to be held, Mr. Jennings better be here. I told her we came only to search. About the the time we got ready to search, Mr. Jennings came. I told what Lizzie said, also what Emma said. Mr. Jennings said, that's all right, go right ahead. We went down to the cellar. We had only been there a few minutes when Mr. Jennings and Hanscom came down. Mr. Jennings spoke about the lumber lumber pile in the yard and wanted us to be sure and search that before we got done. Mr. Bryant, the mason, and myself looked over the chimneys. After finishing the east chimney, which is the one in the kitchen, we we went to look at the one in the west of the building. This runs up up between the parlor and dining room. The side in the dining room seemed to be bricked up or cemented. While we were looking it over, Emma and Lizzie both said, If this front is in your way, tear it out. Mr. Jennings was there at the time. Emma spoke about a lumber pile in the yard and thought it would be a good place to search. Mr. Bryant and myself went into the cellar, and it was thoroughly searched by Edson, Connors, Quigley, and Desmond. From there, we went to search the barn, lumber pile yard, privy vault, and, well, also John Crow's yard, which is on the side of the boarding house. According to Officer Edson's police report, we searched the cellar, chimneys, sounded sounded walls and floor, after which we searched the barn, outhouse, under the outhouse, yard, lumber pile in the yard, and adjoining yards. We found no weapon or anything suspicious. The search was completed about 1.30 p.m. Did Lizzie show any signs of anxiety as the men searched her fireplace? but they noticed the loose brick she removed during the time she eavesdropped on her family. No mention was ever made of it. Marshal Hilliard, Assistant, Marshal John Fleet, Mr. Jennings, Dr. Dolan, Detective Seaver, and Officer Desmond arrived at the house at 3 p.m. that afternoon. It was, to say the least, a full house. At that time, they started in the attic and overhauled everything piece by piece. From there, they went to the second floor and gave it a thorough search. This was continued until the cellar was reached. The same persons, with the exception of D. Desmond, doing the searching there. Of course, the papers reported the day's events. According to the Fall River Herald, Charles H. Bryant, the mason, was called in, and every fireplace was opened and examined. Nothing could be found in the ax, and nothing looked as though it had been disturbed. The wood in the cellar was turned over, and every inch of the building was sounded in the endeavor to find some recent hidden hiding place. But once more, the police were baffled, and the conclusion was arrived at that the weapon had been conveyed from the premises. The strange request from Emma Borden to Mr. Jennings that the Monday, that Monday morning may relate to the notion the weapon had been conveyed from the premises. Both found it necessary to ask the officers to search the lumber pile out back. Why? It had been gone over several times since the day of the murder. It seems odd Emma and Mr. Jennings would make the request. Could it be that Lizzie told them something in private? Perhaps that she had heard a scraping sound the morning of the murder as she was out in the barn? A scraping noise that she may have told her sister and attorney that sounded like it came from the vicinity of the lumber pile? Perhaps the murderer was climbing the fence there and made that noise as he, as he stepped up on the lumber pile, she may have told them. Did Lizzie want the policeman to climb up on the sack pile of boards at the rear of the property? in the southwest corner next to Crows Barn, and look over? Was she hoping they would find the hatchet she had thrown and finally give up searching the house? Would they think the murderer had escaped that way, tossing the weapon as he went, just as the newspaper predicted? And a sober thought to ponder, did Emma and Mr. Jennings know she had killed Abby and thrown it there? Were they helping her by asking the police to search the lumber pile? It is remarkable that with police and civilians alike climbing over and along the back fence, no one saw the hatchet lying on, on Crow's barn roof beneath the protective branches of of Shaden's pear trees. The handless hatchet comes to light. During the Monday morning search of the cellar, the most significant find in the way of evidence was located inside a dusty box in the middle cellar, in the middle cellar of the basement. It had lain there since Officer Mullally and Assistant Marshal Fleet first looked it over the day of the murders. Throughout the following four days, a broken hatchet covered in white ash lay in the darkness of the cellar. Officer Deadman gives this significant discovery a scant three lines in his report on the Monday morning search. At the outset of the search in the cellar, Officer Medley found a small hatchet. I wrapped it up in newspaper and gave it to Medley to put it in his pocket. It had no handle on it. The hatchet head would become the prosecution's star witness during the Superior Court trial. It had received no mention during the inquest or preliminary hearing. At that time, the district attorney and police were waving the claw-head hatchet before the judge's eyes as the probable murder weapon. After all, it was sharp, relatively new, appeared to have been recently washed and swiped. It had to be the instrument of death. There was one problem with it. It didn't fit the wounds. Its five-inch blade was too wide. The production of the, hand, the handleless hatchet at the Surrey Court trial in June of eighteen ninety-three would be one that Edgar Allan Poe would have approved. There was comedy, tragedy, and a mystery befitting the skills of the greatest macabre writer of the nineteenth century. We will showcase in the chapter on the great trial. Alice struggles with a lie. During the morning, as the drama unfolded with the hatchet head in the basement, and another was transpiring in the parlor of the Borden house. Detective Hanscom called Allison to talk to her in private, as Lizzie and Emma waited in the dining room. Unless speaking in whispers, it is quite possible the sisters overheard the conversation, as the two rooms were separated only by a wall. Alice Russell sat nervously, pursing and unpursing her lips, her facial ticks betraying her highly nervous state. Ever since she witnessed Lizzie burning the dress the morning before, she had struggled with the implications. The wooden clubs she found beneath her bed had been bad enough. Lizzie's erratic behavior and volatile nature had unnerved her completely. And now, the detective from the famous Pinkerton agency had her sequestered in in the little-used parlor. She felt the detective agency's all-seeing eye featured, featured in their logo, staring into her soul. Hanscom asked Alice if all the dresses that were in the house the day of the murders were still there. The poor woman's body must have frozen in terror. After a few moments' hesitation, she replied, "They were, as far as she knew." Lizzie and Emma turned to see—excuse <coughs> me—turned to see if frightened Alice Russell walked briskly into the dining room and closed the door. Sitting down dramatically in a spirit chair, she hissed, "I have just told Detective Hanson a falsehood." If the sisters had overheard the conversation in the next room, they kept their poker faces. What was there to tell a falsehood about? Emma asked. He asked about the dresses, if all of them were in the house that were here on the day of the murders. I said yes. Oh, Lizzie, she said, turning her attention to the woman across from her, who was showing signs of anxiety. I'm afraid the worst thing you could have done was to burn that dress. Lizzie blinked, color rouging her cheeks. In a loud voice, perhaps for Detective Hanscom's hearing, she yelled, Oh, what made you let me do it? Why didn't you stop me? Alice may have blanched at having the tables of guilt turned on her. Before she could be torn, a carriage arrived out front to take her on some errands. She left the house flustered and frightened. Upon Alice's return, she was asked to sit down and talk with the sisters and have a talk about her conversation with Detective Hanscom. Emma advised her to go into the parlor, and tell the Pinkerton man the truth. Further, she told Alice to tell him she and Lizzie had instructed her to do so. Alice disappeared into the parlor and returned in a few moments, terribly flustered. She announced she had told she, she announced she had told him. What Lizzie must have been going through, knowing the detective now had that piece of damning evidence, is not known. Did she hope it would remain a secret, as Hascom had been hired by the sisters? He would, no doubt, tell Mr. Jennings. Lizzie's panic grew. Whether Alice had been away from her accounting work for too long or the past four days had been too much for her, she chose that money to pack her small bag and return to her boarding house on Borden Street. Lizzie may have been relieved to see her go. Meetings and Warrants The New York Herald, Fall River, Massachusetts, August 8, 1892. For a long time this evening, the bored and horror hung upon a climax as startling as the crime itself. In a private room of police headquarters, District Attorney Knowlton and Chief Hillier confirmed from 5 o'clock in the afternoon until late at night, and the subject of their conference was whether there was enough evidence to warrant the arrest of three persons well-known in Fall River on the charge of murder. They had before them all the facts which the police had been able to collect along with Detective Seaver and Rose, who had done some of the collecting. Chief Hilliard further exhibited some articles of testimony which throw a new light on the work of the police. The conference had not been going on long when when a patrolman came in with one of the registers in which the druggists are required to enter all sales of dangerous drugs. He took this book directly into the room where Knowlton and Hilliard were at work. What it shows, nobody knows, but the police and the district attorney But ever since the murder, there has been talk of some such book said to contain a record of a purchase of poison by a member of the Borden household. There was rather a sensational beginning to the view of Chief Hilliard's repeated declaration that he was all in the dark for clues or testimony. In 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 a few minutes, there were more surprising developments. Medical examiner Dolan came to the back door of the headquarters and carried under his arm a box in which there were a hatchet and a dress. It was not intended that anyone should know either of Dolan's coming or what he brought with him, but two or three reporters happened to be at the rear entrance to the headquarters when he drove up, and the lap robe road, which, road which covered the box fell to the ground as he was lifting the box from the carriage. The dress and the hatchet were plainly seen. There was something else in the box which they could not make out. Dr. Dolan whisked it into the conference room as rapidly as possible. It has been strenuously asserted for the last two days that the police have in their position a dress found in the boarding house on which was a drop of blood. The police have strenuously denied it. It has also been asserted that the stained axe or hatchet found in the boarding house as described in yesterday's Herald had been discovered to be stained with blood. The police have, 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 have also Vigorously denied it. Dig him up. Before Dr. Dolan delivered his secret evidence to Marshall Hilliard Monday afternoon, he had first gone to the Borden house and enlisted a man to dig up the clothes, yet again, that had been recently buried behind the barn. The victim's bloody apparel and artifacts from the crimes were spread out on the grass for examination. There were certain parts he wanted for further investigation, and he carried them away with him and had the remains buried again behind the barn. Harris found and the victim's clothing were carefully picked from the fibers and placed in an envelope. Other things were taken away as well. The Fall River Herald ran the story of the bloody clothes being being looked over once again and then buried. The New York Herald, sending stories via telegraph to the Fall River Herald, stated without hesitation that meetings were being held, evidence gone over, and three arrest warrants were being prepared. What this news must have created in the form of sheer panic and the three accused can only be imagined. We do know Bridget Sullivan was asked to return to Borton house and spend the night Monday, so she would be available under police guard until she was needed the following morning to appear at the coroner's inquest. If Bridget had read the news and realized she might be one of the three mentioned for an upcoming arrest, it is no wonder that on Tuesday morning, when Officer Doherty came to pick her up for her appearance at the court, she totally broke down. She thought they were about to arrest her. The newspapers ran a report stating John Morse met some friends and chatted with them downtown for a while Monday night. This may have been the time he later testified to meeting Mr. Charles Holmes and his wife in front of City Hall. Mr. Jennings for the defense caught John Morse in a lie during his preliminary hearing testimony when Morse claimed he did not talk with Mr. Holmes about seeing the cellar door open the day of the murders when he first arrived at the house at noon. Mr. Jennings You were asked the other day, when you were on the stand, whether you had informed any person about seeing the cellar door open, and you were asked by me whether you had informed Mr. Holmes or not. And you remember, of course, what reply you made to the questions. I now want to ask you if you have thought the matter over since. Morris, I have. Jennings, state what it is. Morris, I met Mr. Holmes and his wife down in front. Jennings, what person did you mention it to? Morris, Mr. Holmes... Jennings, where and when did you mention it to him? Morris, I think at the house after we got through. Jennings, did you meet him at the house? Morris, I met him first down in in front of City Hall. Jennings, did you walk with him to the house? Morris, yes, sir. Jennings, after you got to the house, what did you do? Morris, went into the house and showed him over it. Jennings, did you go outside afterwards with him? Morris, yes, sir. Jennings. What did you do outside? Morris. Went to the barn. Jennings. Did you go into that with him? Morris. Yes, sir. Jennings. Now what time was it during those proceedings that you told him about the cellar door being open? Morris. I think it was after we went out of the house, after being in. I think it it was. Jennings. While you were going out to the barn? Morris. Yes, sir. I think it was. Jennings. Was that the day of the murder? Morris. No, sir. It was after the murder. I do not know, but several days after. Jennings, what did you do, if anything, at the time you told him about the cellar door? I mean, as to whether you pointed it out or anything of that kind? Morse, I do not know, as I pointed it out. I told him I thought the cellar door was open. Jennings, as to whether you pointed the door out to him at the time you told him? Morse, I think I did. Parentheses, the fun part of John's testimony is that Charles Holmes is seated in the audience within Morse's eyeline, watching him on the stand. It makes it hard to lie under the circumstances, but John Vinicum Morse manages to do it, all the same. End of parentheses. John may have talked over another matter with Charles Holmes that night. Mr. Holmes and Dr. Handy were close friends. Handy was telling his wife and others the night of the murders of seeing a strange man pacing in front of the Morden house that day. If Dr. Handy has related the story to Mr. Holmes, it is possible that Holmes informs John of it as a way to offer up a suspect for the murders. The response he would have gotten from John would be a surprise. Rather than showing appreciation for the news, Morris may have been mortified. The stranger pacing in front of the boarding house Thursday morning was Joseph Chatterton, the man Morris had sent to pick up Abby. The last thing he needed is for the police to find Chatterton and expose the Swansea deal thus implicating Morris with a possible motive for murder. He may have asked Mr. Holmes to tell Dr. Handy that the man he saw is innocent of wrongdoing and to please, in a word, shut up about him. We do know that when the police approached Dr. Handy on August 10th, only four days after Morris' meeting with Mr. Holmes, Handy is suddenly acting strangely and avoiding identifying anyone. Chapter 27 inquest five days after the brutal murders of Abby and Andrew Borden the people of Fall River realized the wheels of the court system were finally beginning to spin rumors of an imminent arrest or arrest were everywhere the streets between the Borden's home and the police station where the courthouse was where the courtroom was housed was were packed with people as though lining on a parade route once again horse and buggies had to pick their way through through the crowd, the marshal, district attorney, and mayor had struggled with what to call the investigation. They were about to begin with the courthouse walls within the courthouse walls. An inquest, by definition, is a judicial or official inquiry, especially before a jury, to determine the cause of a violent or unexpected death. This is typically called a coroner's inquest, and is often held over the dead body. In the Borden's case. The cause of death seemed pretty obvious, blunt force trauma from a heavy, sharp-edged instrument, most likely a hatchet. Calling the witnesses they had on the subpoena list would shed no light on that. As the reporters circled like buzzards, demanding to know the nature of the sudden announcement of the impending events, word went out that the proceedings were merely a judicial inquiry to collect all the evidence through the witness statements. The public was not fooled, and the and the authorities finally admitted it was indeed an inquest. The Fall River Herald was delivering the news from the beginning day of the inquest as fast as anxious readers could devour it. Parentheses, I mean, quote, District Attorney Knowlton, Medical Examiner Dolan, and Detective Seaver had arrived at the courthouse and were in earnest consultation with the, with the city marshal. Officers started from the station in all directions, and it was soon apparent that something of importance was about to take place. The members of the party who had been in consultation in the marshal's office proceeded upstairs, and the first legal proceedings of the case commenced. Miss White, the stenographer, took notes for Mr. Knowlton. Nobody outside of the officials was allowed in the room, and it was impossible to obtain any information as to what took place. Bridget Sullivan, the domestic, was the first to arrive at the station. She was escorted from the house by Officer Doherty. Miss Sullivan was dressed in black, parentheses green, and her countenance indicated that she thoroughly realizes the position in which she is placed. If an honest appearing face was to acquit a person of a crime, Miss Sullivan has that face. From the time Miss Sullivan went upstairs, 9:45 o'clock, until 11:20, nothing indicated that an inquest was being held. At 12.15, a recess was taken until 2 o'clock, the witness being placed in the charge of Matron Russell. It was at this time Bridget told the Matron about the bloody towels in the cellar. Officer Tudori, upon arriving at 92 2nd Street, found a young woman completely in tears. Bridget Sullivan supposed she was being taken away to be locked in a cell in charge of murder. Her composure crumbled. Before the police officer, as he repeatedly tried to assure her, she was merely coming with him to answer some questions in the marshal's office. She would not be placed behind bars, knowing that crowds of reporters outside were salivating for any glimpse of the, of the major players in the Borden murder case. Bridget decided to, to deny them her tears. She stepped out. She stepped out the door with Officer Doherty, and kept her gaze on the sidewalk. Excuse me, it's hot here. Watching her small black shoes. As, she, as they clicked along. When they arrived at the station, she was shocked to see the crowd choking off the entrance to the courthouse. They shouted at her, pushed and shoved for a better view, and impeded the progress of anyone going into or coming out of the dismal gray building. She was escorted, finally, into the Marshal Hilliard's office, where Dr. Dolan, Attorney Knowlton, and Detective Seaver awaited her. Once she was asked to take a seat, she broke down again in near hysterics. Word had come from Professor Wood that the blood staining the small towels found in the bucket of water in the cellar on the morning of the murders was indeed human blood. It was this announcement and others which the police were anxious to question Bridget. According to the Pittsburgh Dispatch, August 10, 1892, Bridget Sullivan was summoned immediately to the police headquarters. She went willingly. Speaking of the identity of the murderer, she said she was too worn and worried to talk of that. Then she explained suddenly, the murderer should clear me. After that, she would say nothing. So Bridget was taken before Judge Blaisdell, where she told and retold her story. The girl stood as long as she could. Then she broke down. She told her examiners, it is said, that she did not believe Lizzie Borden left the house at all. She was asked why she thought Miss Borden had not gone out. She answered with sobs. The district attorney waited in vain for her to regain her composure and at 12 noon, the inquiry was stopped. Lizzie was called to testify in the afternoon to retell her story. In a letter written to Attorney General A.E. Pillsbury on May 5, 1893, shortly before the Superior Court trial was to begin to determine Lizzie Bourne's innocence or guilt in the murder of her parents, Attorney Knowlton gives us some vital information into what was said behind the closed doors of the inquest. New Bedford, Massachusetts May 5, 1893 Honorary A. E. Pillsbury Dear Sir, Jennings wants to have his experts seed skulls, and I told him I supposed there would be no objection and have so written to Dolan. They also want Bridget Sullivan's testimony at the inquest. We decline to give it to them before the indictment, but I do see no objection to giving it to them now. It is almost identical with their story as told before, Judge, Judge Blaisdell, and will do us no harm. What do you think? Yours truly, H. M. Knowlton. (Parentheses) saying Bridget's preliminary hearing testimony, which would occur two weeks after the inquest, was almost identical with her statements at the inquest, does give us a sense of what was said that day, with some very glaring omissions, as we will see. End of parentheses) On May 17th, co counsel for the defense, Attorney Adams, writes to Attorney General Pillsbury requesting a copy of Bridget's inquest testimony, and suddenly neither Pillsbury or Knowlton know where it is. Pillsbury swears he never had it, and thus the mystery of Bridget Solomon's missing inquest testimony began. At the time of this writing, it has never been published. Many believe these records are still hidden away in the files of Governor George Robinson at his still existing law firm Robinson Donovan PC in Springfield, Massachusetts, protected by the client's confidentiality pact. Yet. While they claimed nobody outside of the officials was allowed in the room and it was impossible to obtain any information as to what took place, leaks to the press did occur. The men present at the inquest that day, in addition to the presiding judge, were Attorney Knowlton, Detective Seaver, Marshal Hilliard, Dr. Dolan, and several of the officers first to arrive on the scene. While even court officer George uh, George W. Wyatt was excluded from the secret meeting, others, namely the men with the strong suspicions as to Lizzie's guilt, were front row and center. Officer Doherty and Harrington were among the very first to arrive the morning of the murders. It has long been suspected that carefully chosen press leaks came from Officer Philip Harrington. Pittsburgh Dispatch, October 18, 1892. The leak came through one of the one of the officials who was present at the examination that that official said today, to an intimate friend, it is what Bridget saw, not what she heard or what she guessed, that led to Lizzie Borden's arrest. There were two important points, and they did not occur to her mind, agitated and shocked as she was at the time of the discovery of the crime, until she had a well-defined idea of what the police suspected. Let's take a look at what was so important in Bridget's secret inquest testimony that a person inside the courtroom that day found it beneficial to leak. The Fall River Herald. The first question to Bridget Sullivan was in regard to her whereabouts all through the morning of Thursday up to the time of the murder. She answered that she had been doing her regular work in the kitchen on the first floor. She had washed the breakfast dishes. She saw Miss Lizzie pass through the kitchen after breakfast time and a young lady might have passed through before. During Bridget's preliminary hearing and superior court trial testimony, she sticks to one story that flatly contradicts the inquest testimony. Her story during these two later appearances says she saw Lizzie as she was washing the breakfast dishes as Lizzie came into the kitchen shortly before nine. Directly after John Morris leaves the house, as Lizzie is pouring her coffee, Bridget flees the house to the backyard to vomit. When she returns, Lizzie is gone. She does not see Lizzie again until she appears at the screen door to ask Bridget if she is going to wash the outside windows. The story never changes after the preliminary hearing is held, yet. In the story leaked about her answers at the inquest, she says she saw Miss Lizzie pass through the kitchen after breakfast time, and the young lady might have passed her before. This clearly states after breakfast time, a time that she claims not to have seen Lizzie again until 9.30 that morning when Bridget is outside the screen door with the pail and brush. Why has this story changed? It may have something to do with the missing nine pages of Bridget's testimony during their preliminary hearing. We will look deeper into this detail in the preliminary hearing chapter. And what other tidbit was important enough to be leaked to the reporters? Believe it or not, Bridget washing windows in the attic. Fall River Herald, Wednesday, August 11th, 1892. Bridget Sullivan has proved herself a most valuable witness, and it is no wonder that she is carefully guarded at the house of her cousin on Division Street. It will be remembered that the story told whoa, I got lost. Hang on a second. It will be remembered that the story told all along has sent her, Bridget, to the third floor of the house to wash the windows, and that nobody has been able to ascertain when she ascended the stairs. She told the district attorney she did not go to the third floor story to wash windows at all. Really? While Bridget's window washing was, committed on earlier, was, com- was commented on earlier in the book, it is here in her leaked inquest testimony that we find a tremendous cover-up concerning Lizzie's movements on the day of the murders. Let's see how often Bridget told her story of washing windows in the attic before she was one of the spree hinted in the papers as having an arrest warrant waiting for her. Bridget's first statement to Officer Fleet the day of the murders. Bridget went upstairs at ten fifty five to fix my room. After I had been in the room about ten minutes, Lizzie called me downstairs saying that her father was dead, someone had killed him and get doctor Bowen. Fleet, did you see anyone? Did you see anyone that you think hang on a second. Did you see anyone that you think would or could have done the killing? Bridget. No, I did not. I was washing windows outside and did not see anyone but Mr. Morse that morning, and he went away before 9 o'clock. I'm very sure I was not upstairs more than 10 to 15 minutes. I did not hear the door open while I was upstairs, nor did I see anyone from my window. The Fall River Herald, Thursday, August 4, 1892. The first press report on the day of the murders. She, parentheses, Lizzie, rushed to the staircase and called a servant who was washing the window in her room on the third floor. The New York Herald, Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Bridget Sullivan, a servant, was up in the third story cleaning windows. The Fall River Herald, Friday, August 5th, 1892. At the time, Miss Lizzie came downstairs. I went to one of the upper rooms to finish the window washing. I remained there until Lizzie's cries attracted my attention. I came down and went for Dr. Bowen. I never saw anyone enter or leave the house. The New York Herald, August seventh, 1892. The servant girl said she was at work cleaning windows in the front room upstairs, and she heard nothing until Miss Lizzie called her. Edwin Porter, a police reporter for the Fall River Globe, on Bridget's, you think, was testimony. She finished up her work downstairs and resumed window washing on the third floor, which had been begun the preceding day. The witness went, into the third floor and, while washing windows, talked down to the sidewalk with a friend. She she went on with the windows and might have made considerable noise as she raised and lowered them. She heard no noise inside the house in the meantime. By and by, she heard Miss Lizzie call her. Why so much emphasis on Bridget's activities in the attic that day? And why, during the preliminary hearing, only two weeks later, did Attorney Knowlton asked the most leading question ever allowed during the proceedings? Bridget, when I got through with my work downstairs, if I had not anything else to do, I always went upstairs before I started at dinner if I had time. Knowlton, to Bridget, did you look out the window when you were upstairs? You did not, did you? Bridget, no, sir. Knowlton, you lay right on the bed. Of all mysteries surrounding this case, the handling of Bridget's testimony concerning the simple task of washing windows in the attic the day of the murders is one of the strangest. For a prosecuting attorney to lead his own witness is odd in itself. Why was it so important to get Bridget to get away from that window, a window that, as was pointed out in trial testimony, overlooked the backyard and barn? The author's conclusion has kept her up more nights than she can count. And one you may or may not agree with is, Bridget finished the last of the windows inside on the front first floor. She was expected to clean that day, right? She did not clean the kitchen and parlor windows. She testified she had nothing to do with the second floor cleaning. If you read her testimony in the preliminary hearing, you will notice she says, I got water and cloths to get to wash them, the inside windows on this first floor. She later says she hung up her cloth, poured out the water from the hand basin, and then went upstairs. She only mentions one cloth. Did she take the other with her? She has a water tank in her bedroom's closet. It would be easy to dip the cloth in the water tank and give the remaining windows in the attic a quick spit polish. Bridget mentioned cleaning the front window in the attic. She also mentioned cleaning the window in her room. Bridget's room has only one window. It does not face the front. However, it faces the back of the house. It was stated while washing the window at the front, she called down to a friend, on the sidewalk. This again indicates the front of the house facing 2nd Street. There are two attic windows at the front of the house and two at the back. Bridget's and the spare room where John Morse often slept. As questioned earlier in this book, did Bridget, while washing the window in her bedroom, look down and see the barn door open? Fearing Mr. Borden would see it and be displeased that she had not latched it, did Bridget hurry hurry downstairs and go on and bolt the side door to the barn? Could that be one of the two things the police leaked to the press referred to? It is what Bridget saw, not what she heard or what she had guessed, that led to Lizzie Borden's arrest. There were two important points, and they did not occur to her mind, agitated and shocked as she was at the time of the discovery of the crime until she had well-defined idea of what the police suspected. The police suspected Lizzie was never in the barn. Officer Medley's ex- experiment but the barn-loft hay dust proved no one had been there. Bridget blurted out the morning of the inquest, while sequestered in Hillier's office, that she didn't believe Lizzie Borden had ever left the house at all. When Bridget latches the barn door, Lizzie is nowhere around. If she was in the barn, she would now be locked inside and unable to appear several minutes later at the base of the stairs, screaming her father has been killed. Only as the day of the murder wears on does Bridget start hearing Lizzie's statement, as she was in the barn's loft. She told Bridget she had just been in the yard when she heard a groan and came in to find her father dead. As the officers come and go that day, asking Bridget questions and comparing notes as she stood in her corner of the kitchen, did it begin to occur to her Lizzie could not have been out back or in the barn? Is this partly why she left the house the night of the murders and slipped across the street at the Millers? Now the important question. If Bridget could swear she did not see Lizzie from her window, wouldn't that be a gold mine for, for the for the prosecution? Remember, when Fleet asked her during the early minutes of the investigation if she had seen anybody that morning, Bridget answers, No, I did not. I was washing the windows outside and did not see anyone but Mr. Morse that morning, and he went away before nine o'clock. I am very sure I was not upstairs more than ten to fifteen minutes. I did not hear the door opened while I was upstairs nor did I see anyone from my window. Bridget didn't see Lizzie at the crucial time Andrew was being killed. Lizzie said she went out to the barn after helping her father get settled and stayed out in the yard eating pears or up in the loft of the barn for 20-30 to 30 minutes. Bridget left her at 10.55 to go upstairs and police have decided Lizzie called Bridget saying her father is dead at approximately 11.10. That's only 15 minutes yet Lizzie claims to have been outside an entire 20 to 30 minutes. Then why does Attorney Knowlton, the man hired to put Lizzie behind bars, through damning testimony, lead Bridget away from the window and her proof Lizzie was never out of the house? Bridget testifies she spent part of the time at the front of the house and may have made considerable noise as she raised and lowered the windows, even calling down to a friend. Does Knowlton believe the defense, we used that time to show Bridget was away from her window at the back of the house, long enough for Lizzie to eat a couple of the pears in the, in the backyard and go into the barn, leaving the door open? Will they grill Bridget, asking for the specific time she went down to close the barn door? Does the open door prove Lizzie had indeed been out in the barn? Can Bridget swear she didn't close the door after washing the windows that morning? All it takes are those kinds of questions to raise reasonable doubt in the mind of a judge or jury. Did Knowlton decide it was not worth it to bring it up or open that or, or, or open that door? Oh, and open that door. Did Bridget, not wanting to admit she had forgotten to lock the door, once she had finished the window washing, happily go along with eliminating this detail from her testimony? Worse, would it raise suspicion she was downstairs during Andrew's murder and outside possibly to dispose of a murder weapon? We know from the time of the inquest forward Bridget's story of what she was doing during her 10-15 to minutes upstairs that morning has changed to claiming she was lying on her bed for a short rest. This is probably true in part. Based on how long she took her window downstairs, she could have finished the few windows in the attic in 5 minutes, especially if she had started them the day before. She probably did lie down after finishing, hoping for a full 20 minutes before she had to go down and start the new meal. Attorney Knowlton does the lying for Bridget, so that all she has to do is answer. Knowlton to Bridget, Did you look out the window when you were upstairs? You did not, did you? Bridget, no, sir. Knowlton, you lay right on the bed. Bridget's missing inquest transcript must have been handed. Yeah, okay. Bridget's missing inquest transcript must have been handed over to Mr. Jennings in the month before the superior court trial. As the attorney refers to it several times while questioning Bridget, oddly, she is not asked about what she saw from her window that morning. Did Pillsbury and Knowlton remove that portion? Mr. Adams, co-counsel con- for Lizzie, only asked Bridget to point out what window was hers in a photograph presented to her, pointing out that it overlooks the backyard. Perhaps both sides agreed to, mentioning, to the mentioning of the open barn door was a sticky wicket that could go both ways, and they tucked it away. As a final note to this strange segment, Mary Dolan, the Kelly maid who talked with Bridget over the fence the day of the murders, was subpoenaed to appear before the Superior Court trial in June 19, 1893. She was never called to the stand. Was she the friend Bridget called down to while washing the attic windows? Was Attorney Nolten afraid that under cross examination Mary would be asked about Bridget's movements that morning and, and, and mentioned she saw or talked up to her as she washed the attic window? We may never know. Another strange report concerning Bridges' testimony was addressed by Edmund Porter, the reporter for the police, and a man who undoubtedly received a lion's share of inside information. One of Bridges' statements leaked from the inquest stated, she said, by and by, she heard Miss Lizzie call her. She answered at once and went downstairs to the first floor, not thinking of looking about on the second floor where Mrs. Borden was found dead shortly afterwards, because there was nothing to make her look around as she obeyed Miss Lizzie's call. She found Mr Borden's dead Mr. Borden dead and Lizzie at the door of the room. Did Bridget see Andrew Borden's mutilated body? Was Lizzie standing at the sitting room door near the kitchen instead of leaning against the back door as as Bridget stated multiple times during her three her three judicial appearances that followed? It is interesting that Bridget is questioned repeatedly during the Superior Court trial. By prosecuting attorney Mr. Moody. As to where Lizzie as to where Lizzie was standing when Bridget came down the stairs. Did they know her original story was quite different? Okay, guys, that's it. Till next week. That was quite a bit of info. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I've been reading this stuff. It gets, you know, when I'm reading the testimony. It gets it complicated for me to read, you know, where I'm trying to read it and focus on who's saying what and how they're saying it and stuff, but it, it it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Tomorrow I'll be back at six o'clock. I mean six thirty. <laughs> I'm getting all confused today. Alright, tomorrow I'll be back at six thirty PM and I'm gonna be interviewing I'm checking it out right now. I get my eyes adjust because I got a bright light in my face. Uh, Bruce Genvy. And he's going to be talking about myths and monsters of the Great Lakes. And it should be a pretty cool show tomorrow. So uh, be sure to be here for that at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And again, I want to thank everybody for coming. i got to move this a little bit this way. This made me crazy. I don't know why today. I'm so sensitive. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. I know it's Sunday night. Everybody's got their stuff going on. And I also want to ask you, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. Equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio, and I appreciate each and every one of you for joining me. Uh, check us out again, check us out on YouTube. If you're watching from Facebook, you like what you see, please follow. If you're watching from Twitch, please follow. And the same goes for YouTube. Go ahead and click that little ghost that's down at the bottom right hand corner there. I'd really appreciate it. Anyhow, if you see that ticker thing running at the bottom, that's because California Haunts is a, it's technically a non profit. Um, I own it, and everything you see here comes out of my pocket, whether it's a mic, whether it's a computer, whether it's a light, you know, and anything you see. I pay the Internet bills. I pay all that stuff. And I also pay for equipment for the Paranormal Team. That's why we do a lot of events, to make to, to raise money. So if you could help me out a little bit, that would be great, because I, I love doing these shows, and I love doing different things with these shows, you know, and I love, bring, I love bringing these different guests to you guys. So if you appreciate that too, help me keep the show on the air please donate to uh, paypal.me at California Haunts or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal I have a Venmo and all you have to do is simply type in California Haunts it's that easy anyway I want to thank you guys for coming tonight I do appreciate it and I will see you tomorrow have a good evening